Welcome back to Questions You Never Thought to Ask, the Whitewater Kayak Podcast. As always, this week's podcast is supported by the people who support on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform where you can chip in a few dollars every month to help keep this podcast running and also get early access to the podcast before it goes on general release. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, go check out patreon.com slash Seth Ashworth and find out more ways you can help support this podcast. Uh, welcome back to Questions You Never Thought to Ask, the Whitewater Kayaking Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Whitewater legend Corin Addison, and we are following up on an article he wrote in a publication called The Paddler Ezine called The State of Whitewater Kayaking. Corin, uh, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to give a brief overview of, of yourself? Give us your Tinder bio. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, so my name is Corin Addison. I've uh, been kayaking for a few years. Started uh, in the mid-70s with my father in South Africa and went on to do the Olympic Games, uh, freestyle world championships. I've started a number of kayak companies, the most famous probably being Savage Designs and Riot Kayaks. And I'm now the general manager for Soul Waterman. Great. And uh, I think a lot of people would say that, you know, you helped shape the industry a lot, especially freestyle back in um, back in in the day in the like early 2000s, like late late 90s. Um, so you, you're pretty well educated on what what the state of kayaking was back then. And the, the thrust of this article is mostly that the 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 price of kayaks hasn't significantly changed since 1999. Do you want to just run us through like the, the Coles Notes version? Um, of what you wrote for people who haven't read it yet? Yeah, um, it, it's sort of odd that the first thing that everybody latches onto is the price of kayaks, um, which is not really what the article is about. The price of kayaks is part of a much larger, more encompassing problem. Um, it is it is not the sole cause nor the sole remedy for the issue that we have with the state of the industry right now, but it is one of the problems. Um, <clears throat> if you look at a brief, brief history of kayaking um, where you go to the 1970s, particularly prior to this 1972 Olympics. Um, and if you wanted to get into whitewater kayaking, you had to find a university or somebody or a club who had a mold. You then had to find someone who knew how to use that mold, how to build a boat out of it. You had to go and find somebody somewhere to do it, find somebody to teach you how to paddle. You know, there were no retail stores. You could not go and buy a kayak in a shop. Um, you In Europe, was a little bit more developed at the time where you could go to the Prion factory. You could go to the Lettman factory. You could go to the Lippe factory. Um, and they would have some molds. And they would be making boats. And you could buy a boat from them at their factory. But if you were in Austria, you couldn't buy a Lettman kayak unless you drove all the way across Germany to the Lettman factory to buy it. Um, the US and especially places like where I grew up in South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, I mean, almost the rest of the world, it just it just wasn't on the radar. <clears throat> so then um, in the, in the uh, early 1970s after the Olympics, uh, two companies came along. One was called uh, Dimension, or I, I think originally it was just called River Chaser. And then you had uh, Tom Johnson uh, with the River Runner. Uh, both of them in 1973 came out with a plastic kayak. And out of a sudden, there was a mass-produced kayak that you could buy. <clears throat> but this kayak was not available in stores or shops. Again, you had to know somebody. You had to find out where they were. And even if you did buy the boat, 
you still had to go through the steps of learning how to use it. Then along came a very intelligent fellow called Bill Masters, and he started Perception Kayaks, and he had a different vision for, for kayaking. And his vision was a network of dealerships and distributors around the world that would mean that you could go into your hometown, into a kayak shop in your hometown, and you could buy a kayak off the shelf in the town where you live. And that this shop would offer kayaking classes, they would offer instruction on how to use the boat, they would give you advice on which is the best boat to own. And this is a significant step because it completely changed the way kayaking grew as a sport, the way people became involved in kayaking, it opened the doors to access of kayaking. Now all of a sudden, you could get into kayaking without knowing anybody or anything. You would go to this kayak shop, walk in and say, I want to learn to kayak. And the kayak shop would have a kayak school and they would have somebody that would advise you on the best boat to buy, which at the time was one or two models in one size in four colors, but nonetheless. Um, <clears throat> and by the mid 1980s, a kayak was about 650 US dollars. Um, and there was this kayaking network and dealers were making 45 point margins on these boats and they could afford to do demos and grow the sports and perception was making money and they could afford to grow the sports. And by 1994, I think perception sold for $20 million. So, um, this was a very significant change in the way that kayaking was, was working. And um, one of the things that you have to look at is that the ability to grow the industry, the ability to grow the sport of kayaking, went hand in hand with the fact that the manufacturer perception, and then later others like Parada and Prion, who got on board with the same concept, was going from their manufacturing cost to dealer price at a point that they made money that allowed them to promote the sport. They started to have the first concepts of promotional paddlers. You had the likes of John Wasson and Matt Gaines and Cully Erdman and Rob Lesser and these people who are like icons back when I was growing up, um, <clears throat> who were more or less on a, on a sort of a perception payroll of some sort. They were getting free boats. They were getting expenses paid to expeditions around the world or some sort of help. The dealers, in turn, were making enough margins where they could afford to promote the sport locally. They could go to clubs. They could go to schools. They could try and grow the sport in their area. So the growth of the sport was linked to a, deal, a network of dealerships around the country, if you look at the USA, and the ability of these dealerships and of the manufacturer to have enough leftover money to promote the sport after they had each one of them had sold their product. $650 in 1986 is about $1,700 or $1,650 in today's money. Now, the boats are selling until, until last year where things started to change. Boats were selling for $1,000. The price of manufacture has not become cheaper with mass manufacturing. In other words, the perception was making, if they were turning over, I remember when I started to work there in 1987, their goal was to grow $7 million that year. Now these companies are grossing, you know, 50 million. 
But yeah. the fact that they're grossing 50 million instead of 7 million, the cost of manufacturing has not gone down because rotor molding is not a particularly efficient process. It doesn't, you can't make more boats in one hour in an oven today than you could in 1986. The cost of plastic hasn't just gone up with inflation, it's tripled. The cost of shipping has tripled. The cost of running a factory has tripled. The cost of everything that goes inside it has tripled. Um, you know, the Danso or the Mirage was a plastic shell with plastic walls and a plastic seat and rope handles in the ends. You know, the outfitting was 10% of the cost of the boat. Now the outfitting is 60% of the cost of the boat. So not only has the, the price of the kayak not followed inflation from 800 or from $600 in 1986 to $1,600 now, but if you built the boats now, uh, the way they're built now, in 1986, they wouldn't have been $600. It would have been $900 or $1,000 because the cost of the interior is so expensive compared to just the shell, compared to what they were back then. So these boats, the equivalent boat should be $2,000, $2,500 dollars now. Now, that's shocking to hear for people who... Yeah, I think a lot, of people are, a lot of people are listening at home like, wait, what? Right. And, it's, and here's the problem. If the price of kayaks had been going up $50 a year, every year since 1995, they wouldn't be the sticker shock. It would have just naturally been going up 50 bucks a year following a mix of inflation and the, and the increasing complexity and cost of the manufacturing and the uh, increasing uh, cost of manufacturing unrelated to uh, improving the outfitting and things like that, but just the fact that basically everything that's oil-based has tripled in cost compared to the mid-80s, we would be at $2,500 and nobody would have blinked an eye. It's like throwing a frog into water, into cold water, and boiling it slowly. The frog doesn't notice that the water is boiling because it's been going up slowly. Throw a frog into water that's already boiling and it jumps right out because the water's boiling. So that's sort of the problem that we have now. And this is the industry shot itself in the foot because the industry's tried so hard to keep the price down at this ridiculous sort of number that they pulled out of the sky of $1,000. I mean, 1999, Wave Sport put their price of, I think they came out with the X in 99, and they put the price to $1,014. Now, why did they do $1,014 instead of $999? It was a psychological statement that the price has broken $1,000. The $14 or $15 was irrelevant. It was psychological. And because the kind of prices were being held under this fictitious $1,000 mark, and Wavesport recognized that this was a problem. And by the next year, everybody had followed suit and boats were 1050 basically. This is 1999, 2000. It hasn't changed. It's not sustainable. And we know it's not sustainable because in 2000, they were over, over 800 whitewater dealers in the United States. Now, they are less than 100. They've all gone out of business or they just don't touch whitewater anymore because you lose money. And what we're heading towards at a breakneck speed is an environment where we're going to go back to 1971, where the only way to get a kayak is going to be to either buy it online, which isn't going to be very feasible because the cost of shipping is going up. Kayaks now cost, you ship one boat is five, $600 to ship it across the US. It's not feasible. Um, and if there's no dealers and you can't ship it, then your only choice is to drive to the manufacturer to pick it up. 
So if you live in California and Dagger and Liquid Logic are both in South Carolina and North Carolina, where are you going to get your boat? You're going to go find a mold and build one? Or perhaps the argument is that, well, then somebody in California will start building plastic boats and address that market, okay? But then what happens if you're in Washington State? Do you have to drive to California? Or does another brand have to start manufacturing in Washington State? And we end up... So, back at- go ahead. Um, sorry to, to stop you mid-flow there, Corin. Can we, can we just, uh, like, can I just give you the key bullet points from, from my takeaways from, from what yeah. we've just been talking about and kind of summarize okay. it? Because I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. I just want to kind of just make sure that we're all uh, we're all talking about the same stuff. Um, to, to put it shortly, like there used to be more money in kayaking and kayak companies used to make money. There used to be more promotion. And over time, that like the, the cost has gone up to make them, but the price hasn't gone up um, at the same. And now we're in this position where kayak companies are losing money um, and there's less opportunity for like promotion and less stores than there were 20 years ago. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, and it's not just the kayak manufacturers. The problem is also for the retail stores. I mean, there's two things that used to happen. One is there was an event everywhere, every weekend from the beginning of spring to the end of fall. Somewhere in the U.S. there was a kayaking event going on. Dealers were having demo days multiple times a year, and the manufacturers would send out their local representatives with uh, the whole line of boats. Dealers would carry every model in every color and every size of the boats in their store. So you could walk in the store and all of this was available because the inventory was all there. Now you're lucky if the dealers even carry all of the lines. If they do carry a line, you're lucky if they carry all of the models. If they do carry all the models, you're lucky if they carry all the size and they certainly don't carry all of the colors. Um, They don't do demo days anymore because they can't afford it. Because if you're only making 10 points, 15 points on a boat, you can't afford to have demo boats. You can't afford to have demo days. The manufacturers can't afford to do it either because they're not making any money. They're losing money hand over fist. The only reason why kayaking companies are still making kayaks is because the recreational boats are paying for it. If it costs you so, $600 to make the boat and you sell it for 550 which is literally what's happening. I mean, that's quite literally what's happening. It's cost them $600 to make the boat and they're selling it to the dealer for 550 then it costs the dealer $200 to ship it to their place. It costs them $750, and they're selling it for $1,000, which is 25-point margins. 35-point margins is the bare minimum just to pay for your rent and your overhead and your employees and your lights. You still haven't made any money yet. So the dealer's also losing 10%. Nobody wants to touch it. So where, where do you think it went wrong? Like, where did, where did, Is there like a clear turning point where we started to see the like um, this, like, I don't know what you describe it as, like price, like forced de- depreciation or um, like loss leading or whatever. Like, no, is there, a, in your mind, is there like a clear turning point where it was like, okay, things were good and now suddenly they aren't? Or is it just like one of those, like you're saying, like the water suddenly got hot and now we don't want to be in it? No, there, there isn't a clear turning point. There are some markers along the way that we can look at that we can point some blame at. Um. But those are not all-encompassing. They're not even all-inclusive. And I certainly don't have all the – I haven't been able to ask all the questions. And even if I had, I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, but there are some clear markers. Um, in, if you look at just my local paddling environment here, in, in 2002, when I would go out to the Lachine Rapids, whether it was 6 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock at night 
on a Thursday or a Saturday, at any point in time, when I would go to the Lachine Rapids, there would be 15 to 50 people in the eddy above the wave lined up waiting to go out. Sometime between 2002 and 2004, it went from there being 15 to 50 people in the lineup to none. None. Not a soul. I can go out to the Lachines now. This is now 2020. At any time of the day, other than from, say, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. after work or on a Saturday, I can go out there for three weeks, spend three hours out there every day and never see one single other paddler. That so what, you, what that, happened? What happened in that time period? Like, what is that like 2004? Like, like, is there another event that like correlates with what we're talking about now that is part of that uh, this, this like cycle beginning or? Yeah. So there's some there's some indicators, you know. So some of this is the industries to blame and myself included, where, for example, you know, we spent a decade telling people, if you buy the new model that we've come out with, and I'm not talking about my boats, everybody was saying all the manufacturers, you buy this boat and you're going to be able to do, you're going to be closer to the pros. You, Joe Paddler, are going to be able to do the stuff that the pros are doing in the new boat because it's that much better. So Joe Paddler sells their old boat, they buy their new boat every six months and they they latch onto this dream that they're going to be as good as the pros. The only problem is that the pros have access also to the new boat. So yeah, the guy who, Joe Paddler, is now in, say, 1998, able to do the stuff that the pros were doing in 1997, but the pros in 1998 have taken it to a next level as well. So they never catch up. And one day, all these guys who were in their 20s and the 90s are suddenly in their 30s, in the early 2000s, a couple of things happened. They got married. They had kids. Kiteboarding showed up. Kiteboarding was accessible. Everybody can launch on a kiteboard and dangle from, from their kite like a teabag, and they feel like a hero. Not everybody can throw an air blast <laughs> or a Pan Am. Okay? So yeah. downhill mountain biking came along where all the ski areas opened up their areas for, for mountain biking where you can take the lift up and ride down. So it was you didn't have to earn your turns. You could just ride up the lift and then bomb down the mountain. So all these other sports cottoned on to giving people an easy access to a thrill. And I think people just got sick of the lie, what they conceive as a lie or frustrated with themselves, never being able to close that gap, always feeling like they spent a decade trying to catch up and couldn't. And they just quit overnight. And it was it's a combination of they got older, they had kids, they got married, you know, they got real jobs, they... You know, they went from paddling all the time to working all the time and all this other stuff. And I think a lot of it sort of coincided at the same time. So then now you have manufacturers scrambling. Hey, well, what just happened here? We've just gone from selling, you know, 10,000 units a year over, you know, a, a half dozen manufacturers. So Whitewater is, say, 60, 70, 80,000 units a year to less than 10,000 across the entire industry overnight. Well, what do you do? You drop your price, right, to try and get people into the sport, or you keep your prices down, and you get into the price war. Then the recession of 2008 hits, and that didn't help, because it was just starting to see a little bit of recovery, and then that hit, and that just ripped the rug out of any recovery. So again, you have this artificial trying to, trying to encourage people to get into the sport by keeping the price as low as possible. 
You come out of that recovery, it's now 2012, a decade has gone by, and the price of boats hasn't budged a dollar. They're the same price as they were a decade ago. Now you can't rise the price because people won't accept it. Kayaks have always been $1,000. As long as I've been paddling, they were $1,000. There were a thousand dollars in 1995. There were a thousand dollars in two in 19. I mean, in 2004, there were a thousand dollars in 2010, and it's now 2020. And bug it, if these boats should be a thousand dollars, that's what they cost. And this will come from somebody that has a five thousand dollar mountain bike on their car, and fifteen thousand dollars of kiteboarding equipment in the back. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think I agree that the system is is broken and it's unsustainable and it is something that gives me as a as a kayak enthusiast like cause for concern and i'm i think not enough people are concerned about it because like they have that exact attitude like oh okay it costs a thousand dollars it's like well that's that hasn't been true for a long time and if you're not like connected with the industry you might have like missed the the warning signs that i think are now starting to become more clear with like more and more companies closing or getting bought out and like the selection narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. Um, what do you think the future is going to look like if nothing changes? Bleak. Um, so in the last month and a half, Dagger was bought by Pelican. Do you think Pelican is going to tolerate Dagger Whitewater, a loss-making division? Confluence already shut down Wavesport and Perception Whitewater. There's no point having three Whitewater brands losing money when you can have one. Pelican's not going to put up with that. They're going to shut it down. Unless they can start making money in Whitewater, which means that their margins have to go up. And their margins to go up, they also need to increase the number of sales. For that to happen, the number of dealers out there have to go up. For that to happen, the dealer margins have to go up. Unless this happens, Pelican's not going to put up with it. This is a prediction. I have no insider information about this. It's a prediction. They're not going to put up with it. They're going to shut it down. EJ is out of Jackson Whitewater. How long do you think it's going to be before the people who are now running Jackson Whitewater, before they look at this and go, we make money on fishing boats, we make money on wreck and touring, we're losing money on Whitewater, we're shutting this division down? How long do you think that's going to be? It's, it's an impossible position, I think. And I, I agree, it is a bleak outlook. So that kind of brings me really nicely to my next question. Um, what do we need to do to save kayaking? And if we could break that down into three parts, like uh, what do like consumer manufacturers, sorry, what do manufacturers need to do to save kayaking? What do retailers need to do to save kayaking? What do us kayakers have to do to save kayaking? So the, the biggest thing that we need to do collectively is we need to promote the sport. We need to make the sport something that's accessible. We need to make the sport something that people want to participate in and be a part of. We need to make kayaking something that is accessible, attainable, and desirable for all people of all walks of life. One of the problems that we have right now, uh, and I'm going to circle back to your question because this is important. One of the problems that we have right now is the only imagery that's coming out of kayaking right now is extreme. And that's because it's no longer, the athletes are no longer being funded by the kayak manufacturers or the local dealers. They're being funded by soft, soft drinks. Red Bull and GoPro and things like that. And these guys are not interested in showing family outings on your local class two river. They want to show scary stuff of people risking life and limb going over in bigger and meaner and nastier waterfalls and doing crazier things in a boat. 
that doesn't attract people to our sport. It might sell soft, soft drinks and it might sell cameras, but it doesn't bring people into the sport. But seeing as those are the only people who can afford to, to fit the bill, tight manufacturers can't pay for athletes to go around anymore. Um, so seeing as that's the only people who can pay for this stuff, it's the only imagery coming out, and it's a turnoff. It's scary. It doesn't make people want to get into kayaking. If it looks like the only way you can kayak and the only way to kayak is to risk your life. So we need to, as a, as a sport, that's industry, dealers, and people, do what we can to bring new people into the sports to show people, to show families that this is something that mom and dad with their four-year-olds can do and their teenager can do. And you can do it in class one and class two, which then brings us to the next problem, which is how do you pay for that? How do you pay for this publicity? How do you pay for these promotions? How do you pay for these schools? How do you pay for access to these programs? Money. It, it seems a little bit chicken and egg to me, Karen, like uh, as you know, I sit on kind of both sides of the coin on this. Like, obviously, I'm out here trying to get paid. Like, and you know, none of the manufacturers want to put down that money, and it's increasingly more difficult to get a company to be like, "Oh yeah, here's four hundred dollars for a video or whatever." Like, it's harder and harder to to do that because they don't want to put the money down. But also, like, if you're not if you know people aren't getting paid, they're not going to be making those videos, and it's. Uh, you know, which, which comes first? Like, where, where does that money have to come from to to get to what you're saying of like, a, you know, promoting that more like plus two vibe? The consumer needs to get their head around the fact that that there's been a 20 year long flash sale in the kayak industry where boats have been 50 percent off. And the Black Friday, tw the 20 year long Black Friday sale is now over. It is now Tuesday morning after Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And the price of the TV is back to what it should be. It's $2,000. Until the consumer gets their head around that, the sport is going to die. And it's going to die very quickly. So basically, that is what needs to happen. The consumer needs to get their head around the fact that a kayak is not $1,000. It's $2,000. And when they do that, then the manufacturers and the dealers are both going to have the ability to pay people to make a video to pay people to promote the sport, to pay, to support clubs, to donate boats to clubs so that clubs can have people come in and, and, and teach kayaking to people and donate boats to schools and things like that. Because when they do these donations, when they give a boat to a school or to a club and when they help dealers by giving dealers free demos to go along with their retail fleets and the dealers can then you know, spend money organizing demo weekends for potential customers in the area and come try a kayaking Saturday mornings where people don't have to pay to take a class. It's like a, an, a free introductory thing where you can come and try kayaking for free because they know that if they sell a kayak, they're going to make a, a small profit at the end of the day. And the manufacturers know that if they sell a kayak, they're going to make a small profit after all this. When that starts to happen, then they're going to start to put the money and the effort into it. But there's no... There's no reason for a kayak manufacturer who loses $50 selling one boat to try to sell a thousand boats and lose $50,000. So let's circle back to my uh, original question here. Consumers can do more by, uh, you know, trying to promote kayaking within their friend groups. Is that a fair comment? Yeah. So that's, so that's, yeah. So it's not just money. Like, so the people who are paddling now, need to try and promote, you know, get their friend groups, you know, talk to, you know, if you're a paddler and you've got a kid and you paddle, 
and you're paddling with your kid. Your kid has friends. See if you can get his friends and his friends' parents to come along, even if it's just on a lake. I do this all the time. You know, my son, you know, he goes to school and he talks about his kayaking adventures over the weekend. And he has a YouTube channel and, and he shows his friends at school, you know, when they jump on the tablets at school and he shows them himself kayaking. And then all his little friends want to do it as well. And so they ask their parents. And, you know, so we've taken out dozens and dozens of parents and kids from his school just on the lake and just introduced them to paddling. And a couple of them have picked it up and most of them don't, but they had the experience. But it needs to be a lot of people doing that, not just me. Um, and so that's, you know, uh, at a, at a, from, you know, just your average boater person doing that sort of thing. Um, but the consumers also need to come to grips with the fact that the sticker price on a boat is not $1,000, it's $2,000. And unless you're willing to pony up, the sport's going to die. And when it dies, you're, the sport that you love, the things that you like to do, the kayaks that you like to own and you like to buy, that's going to be gone. It is, it is definitely a grim picture, Karin. The last, I want to talk about one last thing, one last piece of this puzzle that I think is important. Um, we've kind of talked about it from the consumer point of view. We've talked about it from the manufacturer point of view. Um, where do you stand on supporting your local shops? And where do you stand on things like uh, Walmart, Canadian Tire, Dick Sporting Goods, carrying kayaks? Where do you stand on big box stores like uh, MEC in Canada and REI in the States um, that carry kayak gear? Like, should we be supporting stores like that where I go into it and I say, hey, like, you know, I'm looking at some kayaking gear and the person has fucking no idea uh, about what kayaking gear is right for my needs uh, versus supporting like an actual kayak gear with kayakers who work there. Let's look at mountain biking as an example where big box play a major part in mountain bike sales. Walmart sells more mountain bikes than anybody else. And they sell these $500 Huffies and even $900 sort of base level full suspension mountain bikes. And people who are interested in mountain biking will go and drop 500 or $1,000 on a mountain bike and get into the sport. And most of those people will just buy the bike off the rack with no idea, nobody there to advise them. They just buy a bike and they go out and they start riding it around and they start having some fun. And let's say nine out of 10 of those people never take it any further. But one out of 10 of those people goes, I'm really liking this. And, you know, I need to get some better protective gear that Walmart doesn't sell. So then they go into their local high-end bicycle shop, of which they are all over the country. There's dozens in every city and every town. So they're easy to find and they go walking in there and they say, yeah, I've got this mountain bike that I bought and I'm starting to get better and I'm having a good time and I need to get some better protective gear. And the, the guy in the store who is knowledgeable, who does know what he's talking about, says, yes, you do. You do need to get better gear. Uh, let me show you some gear over here. Uh, this is what you need over here. What kind of bike do you have? The guy goes, oh, I've got a Huffy or whatever. Oh, cool. And how do you like it? No, oh, I like it. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Dude, you know what? If you're really into this, like, that was a good purchase and well done for, for getting into the sport. But if you really want to take this to the next level and start bombing down trails without crashing, you need to step up your game. It's time to get into a real bike that's going to really help you progress, that you're going to have a lot more fun, more control, you know, 
Uh, you do the whole sales pitch. Let me just show you a bicycle over here. You take him over and you show him a $2,500 bike and you explain to him why he's going to have more fun. Then you pull out the demo of that bike and you say, here, take this for a ride because the bicycle manufacturer is able to provide demos because they're making profit. And the guy goes out and he rides the bike and it's clearly obvious immediately that the bike is good. And they buy it. And they don't just buy a $2,500 bike. They buy a $4,000 bike. In 2019, the single biggest growth in mountain bikes was $3,500 to $4,000 bicycles. And it grew by $50 million in sales. Compared to the $1,000 bike range that dropped by $3 million in sales. People I have mean, money. They will spend the money at a specialty store. So my takeaway on this is big box stores are not our enemy. They are our friend. Because people wander into big box stores. They wander into REI. They wander into Canadian Tire. They, they wander into Dick's Sporting Goods. And they buy a $500 or a $300 kayak off the shelf. And they go to the lake and they start paddling it around. And they enjoy it. And some people, that's as far as they'll ever take it. But you only need 1% of those people who go, I really like this. And they start to educate themselves or they see a kayak drive by on a car that looks different to theirs. It's a whitewater boat. They see something on YouTube. They see something on TV. And they go, huh. But now here's your problem. There's no store for them to wander into. They don't exist. You could drive 500 miles now in the U.S., to your closest whitewater dealer inside if you live in some places. So there's no means for this person who bought their $350 lifetime plastics kayak at Dick's Sporting Goods to then be interested in whitewater and actually access the sport unless they personally know somebody who does it. And that kind of brings us really nicely back to like what uh, what we can do as as consumers as as kayakers to help grow the sport, right? We we've, we've got to get more people interested. We've got to make ourselves more available to more people that we are interested in this and that they could be interested in it too, because it's a lot of a lot of fun, and I certainly get a lot of value out of it. Yeah, you know, and so it is. It is the you know paddlers out there uh, promoting it amongst their friends, talking to their friends, being accessible. But it's not enough, and they're not going to be doing it on their own because your average paddler doesn't necessarily have the skill set to teach. Some do, some don't. They won't necessarily have the equipment. They might have one creek boat and one play boat. So, you know, um, creek boats aren't necessarily the best tools for teaching in, and play boats certainly aren't the best tools for teaching in either. They might only have one life jacket and a spray skirt and one paddle. How, do you, how does the consumer teach somebody else to do it? It's, it's kind of hard for them to do. And... If you go back and look at when did kayaking explode, kayaking exploded hand in hand when the dealer network grew. When we went from almost no shops in the United States who sold kayaks in 1977, 1978 to over 800 shops by 1988 in the United States selling kayaks, that's when kayaking grew. 
because it was possible to show interest in the sport and have access to the means to learn it. Because the shops are equipped to teach you, they're equipped with the stuff that you need to learn, the equipment you need to buy, everything. And the shops have all gone because they can't make money and the manufacturers aren't supporting shops and they aren't doing any of the stuff without the shops, even if they could, which they can't. They can't do it without the shops. But even if they could, they're not making money either. I think um, I, I did a podcast like last year with Jeff Calhoun and we were kind of talking about kind of like how to save kayaking. Uh, and one of the things we were talking about was that every time you speak to someone about kayaking who's not a kayaker, you should have, you know, on hand in your, in your memory banks, like the name of your local kayak club, the name of a place they can go learn to kayak and the name of a place that they can go find out more information in their community. And I think if everybody had those, like if every single kayaker had those three facts always on hand, and then whenever someone you, you know, they talked it with, they could deploy those three facts, we'd start to see uh, a lot more growth a lot more quickly because that would help kind of narrow down people's, people's search of the internet to their local area. Yeah, yeah, that w- it would, and, and exactly, that's absolutely true, and it needs to be done. Um, but even so, there are a lot of areas now in the U.S. where there are no clubs within easy driving distance. There are no, there, those things that you just mentioned, they just don't exist in your town. And if someone doesn't already kayak, they're not going to drive two and a half hours to some other town. Most people aren't. Some people, like, they get it in their head, hey, I really want to do this, and they're going to they're gonna figure out how, okay? But the average person who's showing mild interest, until they experience kayaking, they're not going to become enthusiastic about it. It's a mild interest. And if there's no easy way for them locally to access this, they're just going to move on to something else. They're going to go mountain biking or skiing or, you know, fishing or whatever. So, you know, like I said, so we, like we started off, this is not, it, you know, my article, my, my, my whole point is not, it's not that, that money is the root problem and that money is going to solve all the problems. But the lack of money has exasperated the problem tenfold. And without a massive infusion of money, we're not going to be able to solve the problem in any meaningful way. Money on its own is not going to fix the problem. But money is required to do the things that will fix the problem. Uh, Karen, I think that's a great place for us to leave it. I think we've given people a lot to think about. We've given them some information on, on what they can do to kind of help our, our community. Like after all, I think we are all in this together. Um, where can people follow you on the, on the social media if they're interested in doing that? Um, I'm old, so I'm on Facebook, Karen Addison on Facebook. I have Instagram. I don't think I've ever actually opened it. Um, I have Twitter. I haven't opened that either. So I have them, but I don't go there. I should. <laughs> but the easiest place to find me is uh, either Karen Montreal on the river, come up, come paddling, I'll take you out. Um, or on Facebook, that's, uh, that's the easiest place to get me. Great. Karen, thanks for talking to me. Have a great day. Thank you, and uh, best of luck.